right, welcome back. We got Ryan and Steve here, and today we just finished up having an awesome conversation with Mark Gallant. Uh, he's a physical therapist out of Richmond, Virginia. He, I actually attended a, a continuing education course. He teaches for a group called the Institute of Clinical Excellence, and it focused on a lot of dosage and prescription of exercise, and I just felt like this would be an awesome topic to have on the show to talk about exercise progression because I feel like it's something that is challenging for all of us clinicians out there. And it was, it was great because he gave us some mile markers and things to think about. And Ryan, is this something that am I the only person in the room here is something that you've struggled with in your career? Is that exercise progression? And did you have any good takeaways from the episode? what do you think? You know, it's great. So Mark does a good job of breaking down irritability in our uh, patients. And, uh, he does a good job of kind of illustrating what that looks like from a low perspective to a high perspective and then give some great examples and understandings of how you progress those people, how you load those people and and uh, how do you kind of get them to climb the ladder. Yeah, and I think you might be testing people's one rep max for certain muscles now, I bet. Well, that right. Okay, cool. Well, let, you guys don't want to hear us talk, so let's just cut straight to the episode. Make sure you guys click that subscribe button on your listening platform and leave us a five-star rating so we can keep changing the world one hand to shoulder at a time. All right, this afternoon, we got a special guest with us. Dr. Mark Gallant has joined the show. Mark, thanks for taking your time out of your day to join Ryan and I this morning. Yeah, thanks for having me, you all. Yeah. Do you mind just giving our guests just a little background on yourself, your profession, and just kind of introduce yourself? Absolutely. So I'm a physical therapist. I've been out of school for about 10 years now. I own and operate Onward Richmond, which is part of the overall Onward physical therapy group that was born a bit out of the Institute of Clinical Excellence, which is I teach the extremity division alongside Lindsay Hewing and Eric Chacones for the Institute of Clinical Excellence. And Onward was basically our concept of putting our money where our mouth is, okay, if, if we believe this is the best way to treat patients, opening clinics across the country that, that treat with that, that philosophy. In addition to those two gigs, I teach a couple times a year, uh, adjunct at South College, so helping run their MSK1 and MSK3 labs, which is a bit of a divergence from my, my normal teaching gig where I teach all extremities with South College. I help out with their two spine courses, which which is nice because I feel like it keeps me a bit well-rounded. And then besides that, uh, coach CrossFit a couple times a week and then just hang out with my wife and dog. That's awesome. Can you speak to how you got involved with the Institute of Clinical Excellence for our listeners who don't know? Um, that's how I met Mark. I took the extremity management course through that orthopedic group. I highly re would recommend that course. Yeah. So basically it, it was pretty organic. I, I was about two or three years out of physical therapy school. And to be honest, was, was questioning a bit if I wanted to continue with the, the profession. I just wasn't getting the outcomes that I wanted. I was, I was just a bit disenchanted and frustrated overall. And then I took, I can't remember off the top of my head, if it was the lumbar management course or the cervical management course with our CEO, Jeff Moore. And about 45 minutes after hearing him talk, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm back in. I'm definitely sticking with this profession. And there was a, a group of us six or seven years ago that just started following him around and taking every course that he taught kind of obsessively. And I guess I just started showing up enough times where he said, well, we'll give you a job at some point if you're just going to keep showing up. And that's how I wound up teaching the uh, 
the extremity management course. Nice. Okay, so I guess we just got to follow Jeff Moore around now. I, I yeah. can speak to that. <laughs> I, I, I took the cervical course myself uh, a year ago, and I, I can speak to exactly what you just said, how it, uh, the, within the first hour of listening to that man, you're just like, all right, let's. this is going to be one heck of a course. Yeah, I think I think our other, the two spine faculty, Jordan Berry and Zach Morgan, I think have me beat as far as the amount of courses. I think Jordan took something like 40 courses in a year and a half time span. Um, does he, does he give you a punch card at that point? That, yes. You know, every 10 classes, you get the 11th free? Right. So I, I wasn't as crazy as Jordan, but but probably second or third in line there. Wow. You know, just before we get into this, I think that's you, you make a great point here. Your outcomes weren't as great as, as you wanted to. What were you finding? Was it, in, was it barriers with insurance and visits or was it what you were taught in school? What, what were you, what made the difference for you there after listening to Jeff talk? You're thinking about leaving the profession. That's a pretty big thing. Yeah. It, you know, I, I think maybe in, in physical therapy school or early, early out in the career, there's just so much and it just seems so complex and our patients are all complex. And a lot of times you're, you're double booked in the insurance model seeing multiple people at once. And I just felt like I was never able to one, give my patients enough attention and two have the time to, to reflect at the end of the day and go, okay, if I tried these three or four things on this person, what worked, what didn't work. So I, I just felt like I was kind of in this, in this loop and it was taking those courses. And then I got involved in the EIM fellowship and the EIM residency and those sort of things where it was like, okay, they're just like anything in life. There are patterns here. And if you start to recognize these patterns and you can simplify things for yourself and then give give people an effective treatment in an efficient manner where I, I didn't have that necessarily early on in my career. Okay. Yeah. So you're onward as a cash-based model then I'm assuming, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Very cool. Well, I think you're an expert to bring on and probably the best guest we could bring on Mark for this to talk about exercise progression. Kind I'm of what you were alluding to when you were saying, you know, I was not having the best outcomes. I remember when I was a student and then when I got into my first job, I remember my clinical instructor and then my mentor at my first job said always was, Hey, know your anatomy. And then you'll have to get better with exercise progression, your exercise progression. But I wasn't really being shown anything with the exercise progression. And I feel like a lot of people find themselves in that, you know, I had one or two go-tos for this muscle and, and this muscle, right? Cause you're taught isolated things in school, right? So why is exercise progression, since you're working with students and stuff, why do you think it's so hard for therapists to progress people? I think there's two main things that come to mind when, when I think about that question. One is, again, going back to my frustration early on out of school is humans are just, we're, we're complex species, right? When any of your patients that, that come in, they're going to have you know, social problems, financial things, a lot of comorbid. There's just a lot going on. So it makes the exercise prescription and dosage. You have to be really simple with it because there is so much else going on there that to the equation. So getting really complex and kind of a, out there with your exercise dosage and prescription is hard to match to complex patients. The second piece and probably the more important thing is just the day and age that we live in where you can go on Instagram and see 6,000 variations of every exercise and, and no one has more fun or more problems going on to social media and looking at 
different exercises than than me myself, but that can add a lot of confusion to to all therapists and especially younger therapists where it's like, oh, maybe I need to be doing this exercise or maybe I need to be doing this exercise where the real thing to focus on is is how to dose in the context, not the the thousand variations of a squat we can do. Like, can we get the quad stronger? Can we get the hip stronger? Can we get the shoulder stronger? Have two or three exercises that you know you can coach really well and know that you can dose for the patient in front of you. Wow. That was well yeah, said. No, Holy yeah, cow, like, yeah. Yeah, I think that the things I would add to it that I just kind of see is, you know, what the complication is. You get the the side of um, providers where uh, they just don't feel the competence. You don't uh, trust yourself. So you're not willing to try new things. And then you get the whole other spectrum where, um, yep, you just see it's a cool fad exercise and, and you're just doing it to do it. And, you know, you ask the providers, like, why did you even give that exercise? What do you, what's the goal? Like, does your patient even know why they're doing it? And, uh, that's, so it, it's kind of a double-edged sword there where, uh, how do you find that happy medium where you're, uh, giving them something that they know why they're doing it, you know, why you're giving it and, and then progressing it. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget when uh, one of my, my friends and another mentor, Jason London, I asked him some questions about what, what type of exercise is he giving for these specific patients? And he sent me a, a, a little handout of things. And I was like, it, it was like heel raises, straight leg raise. It was very simple stuff, but he just had a very specific pattern of, I want to see this person be able to do this many repetitions of this simple exercise and then I will move him to something more advanced. And I was like, Oh, if I mean, the guy's treating patients for the U S national snowboard and ski teams right. uh, and getting wonderful results. Like this guy's using very basic things. Me doing, you know, an, an RDL with 16 bands and 18 kettlebells hanging from different limbs is probably not, not necessary. Yeah. You know, I, I, I fall into that category too of, I am like the fad King, like you, Mark said, like, I think I went through a period there where I was just trying so many different things and I didn't quite know why. And I feel like in the last year or two, I've kind of really dialed in on how I want to progress somebody to, you know, from whether it's supine to a kneeling position, to a standing, um, I, it's, it's taken a long time, but a lot of times you, you right. You want to do something new and sexy because, I, I was kind of drilled into my head. You don't want to do something that a patient can find on the internet, you know, like, and yeah, whether that's right or wrong, I, but I, it is, it, it's, it's hard. It, it, it's challenging. And sometimes Absolutely. the simplest stuff is what's the most effective at times for sure. Right. When you think about our exercises, Mark, do you put them into like a category? I mean, right. When you're going through, you know, your OT, your PT, your AT, Cairo school, whatever it may be and your musculoskeletal stuff, you're probably talking about isometrics, isotonic exercises, maybe even to some degree in isokinetic. Are there any other categories you, you put them into at all? No, and, and the, really the way I, I think about it now, it, it's certainly using that terminology with the isokinetics, the isotonics, the isometrics, but more so of just what is the, what's going on with this person? What's, what's the irritability that they're at and how do I match an exercise to that specific thing? So if we're using tendinopathy as an example, if someone's got a Achilles tendinopathy, I'm probably going to run the gamut of all of those different types of loading strategies, isometric, isotonic, isokinetic during their plan of care. So 
early on, they may only be able to tolerate isometrics. Once they can tolerate the isometrics well, I may move to my concentric eccentric exercises with some load. And then I may move to where I'm adding speed as a variable and changing the tempos of things they do where, okay, I might have them do box step ups at 60 beats per minute, progressing it to 80 beats per minute to 90 to hundred to 120. So using all of those load styles within any given plan of care. So you raise a, a good point there, and I want you to kind of elaborate for our listeners. So you mentioned the level of irritability is kind of what you're using to, to determine what and how much you're dosing. Can you kind of speak on what like a low, um, medium, high irritability kind of looks like in the clinic? And yeah, yeah. And maybe more of an upper extremity example, if you don't mind not to be picky, that's who we cater to though. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. So, yeah. so if we're using like a, a posterior cuff type presentation for, for our irritability, what at ICE we always talk about is, is we look at a mountain to, to base our irritability. So if someone is on the high irritability side of things, there's going to be a steep front side of that mountain. So that person may, when they reach overhead, their pain may go from a zero to a nine right away, like extremely quick. And then on the back side of that mountain to calm things down, it's going to take a long time to calm things down. So we're looking at both how fast the things come on, how fast the things calm down. So with the higher irritability patient, it's going to be relatively short amount of time and a lower level thing that brings that, that pain in their shoulder on. And then it may take three, four, maybe the whole rest of the day to calm it down. So that's someone who I'm, I'm going to say is a pretty hot or high irritability where another person may have to play tennis for three hours. And then all of a sudden they start to feel posterior shoulder pain after three hours of fairly vigorous tennis. And after they stop for 10 or 15 minutes, their symptoms calm all the way down. So it's a slow build on the front side of that mountain for the low irritability and a fairly steep off to their symptoms. Wow. I like that. So that's kind of how you determine where you start and your progression with the exercise then is based on the level of irritability. Absolutely. Does the diagnosis for you, obviously that can be contra- controversial, right? Whether it's you treat it quote unquote diagnosis, or you're looking at impairments, does that matter to you at all? Or is it just, I'm always looking at the level of irritability where I want to start. I'm using the, the combination of the two things in, in context with each other. So if, if we're sticking with like a, a rotator cuff tendinopathy or rotator cuff related shoulder pain, as an example, I know probably I want to give some stimulus to the the posterior cuff muscles. That just seems to be something that works really well for a lot of those patients. So I know my exercise choice and the thing I'm going to give is going to be based on that pattern where my dosage is going to be pretty much based on their irritability. So if they're really irritable, I want low tensile load. So maybe 30% of their, whatever their one rep max is, let's say for a sideline external rotation. And I want a higher, higher volume. So maybe like 20 reps at a really low load, because I'm trying to create a pump and improve that tissue health. So I want a lot of nutrients, a lot of blood flow, all of those things brought to the muscle area without a lot of high tensile load, because that person can't handle tensile load at that time. Where if they're lower irritability, 
I want to go lower repetitions and higher tensile loads. So I might get into that 70 to 80% of their one rep max because now they can, they can handle more stress to that tissue and we can get them some adaptations to that load. Did you say sideline external rotation? Is that the exercise you mentioned as an example? Yeah. If we were going to do like a posterior shoulder, just really getting that, that posterior cuff going. Okay. So I I just kind of, before we, add on to that. I just want to circle back because I think this whole irritability thing is a a beautiful um, point. Uh, So we say low, medium, high. I think we all listen to that. We understand that. How, uh, how do you know? How do you know where the patient is? I mean, uh, I don't want people just to assume that, that we already know the, the patient's story. So how are you determining, how are you dosing your first exercise? Yeah, for sure. So a lot of that is going to be based on the combination of my subjective and my objective exam. So I'm really trying to figure out their irritability in my subjective exam. So I'm asking a lot of questions like, okay, Brian, what, what sort of activities, movements, or postures bring your symptoms on? Great. Bringing that tennis racket overhead. How long do you have to play tennis or how many swings does it take before those symptoms come on? And how intense does that pain get? Then I want to know what calms it down. Okay. After I bring my arm back by my side, two minutes later, all that shoulder pain is gone. So using that subjective, and that's going to give me an idea again of that, that front side of the mountain, back side of the mountain. And then I'm testing that theory during my objective exam. Let's say it is more of a rotator cuff related shoulder pain with my manual muscle testing, my palpation. And then I'm going to really lock in. Okay. Like, I could give this a fairly decent amount of vigor during my objective exam. And I did not flare the, yes, their symptoms blipped, but I did not flare this person up. I'm dialed in. We can dose the exercise out appropriately. And then there's a bit of a, I don't want to say guesswork, but, you know, feeling out from experience of like, I think this person could probably handle the five pound weight for this volume and testing that theory out. If it's the, uh, the high, you may make a mistake. You may think in the subjective exam, like, Ooh, this is a low irritability patient. And then you get into your objective exam and it's like, Whoa, boy, this is actually quite hot and quite irritable. And then you need to to have the wherewithal with new information to go, okay, subjective and objective didn't match up. I need to, to lower my tensile load, go more to that blood flow, getting, getting movement to the area with low, low intensity for this person. Yeah, no, a great response. I, I think, uh, right. The emphasis being with that is how important that subjective interview is. It's, uh, um, you're not just asking the questions to ask it. You're asking cause you're trying to understand what makes it better. What makes it worse? I thought what was really cool when I took the PT on ice course, the cervical management course, um, uh, Jeff Moore kind of spoke on how, when he's doing the subjective, he doesn't let the patient like start their story right away. It's right jumping right into the pain and talking about where is the pain, what makes it better, what makes it worse, because we can go down a, a pretty crazy rabbit hole if you just let the patient start sharing their story. And next thing you know, you're 15 minutes in, you're daydreaming about what's for lunch, and, and it's all a mess from there. So I Absolutely. think that's a kind of another cool thing to add on that that I've learned from from you guys. Awesome. Yeah. We'll, we always say uh, we don't want any barstool stories. We. Yeah, yeah. We don't want the story that you've given to every person that you've saddled up to the bar. Yes, want, yes. People love to share that though. Yeah. We <laughs> we want the story that has meaning that's going to rule in our hypothesis and get us to to the irritability to move forward. Yeah, that's great. 
you know, you, you kind of left a little bit of a, a mic drop moment there. You had mentioned, well, I'll find this person's one rep max and you started talking percentages and I want to work our way into that. So let's, let's stick with that example you gave us, right? Of that someone with that posterior cuff. So let's say, you know, someone's coming in and you've made the determination, determination, they're highly irritable. How are you finding that one rep and when are you finding that one rep max to determine that dosage? Cause I want to, yeah, I don't think a lot of people would think to do that. Yeah. So if, if it is the truly highly irritable patient, I'm probably not trying to test a, a one rep max or a two uh, to failure, whether it's a five rep max, 10 rep max. I may not test that day one because my, my sole purpose for that high irritability patient is to try to put the fire out early on. So we're doing anything we can to try to calm down, calm down symptoms, whether that's dry needling, joint mobilization, your other soft tissue techniques, and just very light blood flow exercise. With a lot of those people, I'm talking to them about their nutrition, their sleep, hydration. We just need to get the system from here down to here. And once we've got that a little calm, then maybe visit two or three I'm going to find a relative run, one rep max. So I want to say, you know, trying to find where they fail around a 10 rep max for that higher irritability patient. So we don't have to put a lot of tensile load through the system that may flare them up and then getting the baseline from there. Okay. So what are some types of exercises you would give someone for in, in the highly irritable category, like right away when we're not able to find that one rep max, what are some things you'd give them? Yeah. So again, maybe a little heavier on the manual therapy earlier than I would be later on during their progression. So really trying to calm, calm those things down with a highly irritable shoulder, to be honest, I'm, I'm giving them lower body, high intensity interval training, whether that's fast walking, getting on a treadmill at high speeds, a bike, I want to flush and get a lot of blood flow to the system. And then my exercises are, are going to be fairly basic, really light load, maybe external rotation, light load, just working into some, some flexion. Again, just, I'm thinking as much blood flow to that area to get the system calmed down. So are you saying more like active assistive stuff, active range of motion, maybe some isometrics, um, maybe one pound weight, something light like that. Am I following you there? Absolutely. And then with, with those isometrics, early on where we're trying to build up to can this person hold for, for up to 45 seconds. They may not get their day one, but we want a light load that they can hold for a long time seems to be where the research really points towards in those isometrics. Yeah. You make a good point. I want to jump into the dosage and maybe some, some rest. I think Ryan's got some questions, but you mentioned you want to flush the system. Mm-hmm. I think that might be a new concept to some other, some, to some of our listeners. Um, how do you educate your patient? Cause it sounds like whether it is a upper or lower extremity issue, you probably use a that strategy, right? Of the high intensity interval training. Absolutely. So, so could you go through how you would educate a patient on this is what I'm going to have you do and why? I think that's fascinating. Yeah. That, I, I had the same question and the, to build on that uh, question as well, then speaking on like, how you mentioned diet and sleep and how do you incorporate that? Do you 
kind of throw it all at once? Do you slowly pepper it over sessions? Um, right. Because that can be kind of a delicate thing to, to just throw at a patient at once. So yeah, kind of speak on how do you, how do you bring in the whole systemic exercising and diet, sleep, all that. Cool. So I'll go the, the first question about the high intensity training and how we prove that to someone where it may not seem to add right up for the, the person. And then I'll talk about the sleep and that after. So for that high intensity training, it, it all goes back to that, to the test retest and, and really putting your money where, where your mouth is. So if someone's got that shoulder pain and they, you know, we've all seen the, these patients where they can barely raise their arm 20 degrees in any direction. It's, it's just a fairly hot region of the body, getting them on the bike and getting that heart rate up. And then immediately after they get off that bike, we're going to retest their range of motion or retest their strength with a, with a dynamometer and just show them right then and there like, Oh, before you were on the bike, you could only raise your arm 30 degrees. Now you're raising it 60 degrees. And that's what really seems to create the, the overall buy-in for those patients of, of physically seeing it right there. So again, in the ice courses, we always talk about when, when Jeff Maitland created the test retest model, we think he was probably doing it for us as the physical therapist to, to prove that our interventions and our hypothesis was right. But the real beauty of the thing is it proves it to the patient. Exactly. I mean, what better buy-in for an intervention of, I was in five out of 10 pain, you put me on that bike and now I'm in two out of 10 pain. Yeah. Pretty damn cool. That's, yeah. You, you ever struck out using that ever? All the time. Okay. All right. All right. All the time. Okay. Every, every day of my life. And okay. I mean, the challenge of physical therapy and also the fun part is where, you know, our, our hypothesis and our strategies are probably far, far superior to the someone off the street, but it is a bit of matching the right thing to the person in front of you. And you're not always going to be right the, the very first time. And so it's having good communication with the patient and willing to be, to be honest and, and try a few different strategies until you get to the, to the right thing. Yeah. I, I practice the test retest model myself. Uh, and, uh, I, I look at the glass half full, right? You do the test retest. It's not better. It's not that, um, Oh crap, that didn't work. It's Oh, cool. Now we know that we don't need to, you know, divert our AGP there or the rest of the time session as we can start looking elsewhere, you know, and, and just trying to frame it positive, even if it in our heads, we're like, Oh crap. <laughs> Absolutely. And then as far as the nutrition, sleep, and general exercise thing, I don't bombard people with that full four. It's not like a, a lecture day one that every patient's getting. On my During my subjective exam, I'm always asking people, I ask them about their sleep as it relates to whatever they have going on. But after I get like, does the shoulder pain wake you up? How many times does it wake you up? How long does it take you to fall back asleep? My follow-up question is how many hours of sleep do you typically get a night? And do you feel well rested? I don't start lecturing them on sleep hygiene. I just want them to know that I care about that and get a f overall sense. Same thing with nutrition. What do you feel like your overall intake of processed sugar is like? I don't, I just ask the question. I don't dive anymore. I just get the information. And what is your general week of exercise look like? How many days are you exercising? What sort of things are you doing? Just so the person knows that I care about those things. And oftentimes visit two 
visit three, that that person will start to bring up like, you started asking me these questions about about sleep and general exercise. I was kind of surprised by that. What what were you getting at with that? And then it leads you into like, well, actually, you know, those three things are probably the big rocks. And if we don't really take care of those three things, well, there's not a lot we're going to be able to do from just a specific exercise standpoint. Yeah, that that's beautiful. Or even if they're not giving you that information, you might be able to follow up right at the second, third visit as you're establishing a better rapport and a better relationship. You might say, hey, you remember we were talking about the sleep and you said you weren't feeling well rested. That might be a great segue, right? As you're getting to know them as well. Absolutely. That, awesome. That's the thing right there. Yeah. I think that's a great example, Mark, because I think that is delicate and it's, you know, something do we want to go down? But I think asking those questions lets the patient know, Hey, we care about you. We're here for you. I think that's awesome. That's, that's, yeah, that's perfect. People have irritability to those. Like no one is food might be the most sensitive topic in the world. And then, yeah, general exercise, not, not far behind that. So I was, I think like I'm, I'm dipping my toe in the water and seeing where the person is on an irritability, irritability level from that perspective. For sure. Yeah. And then that's, that's a skill in its own being able to know, to uh, get that feel for what is their irritability with stuff like that. And I've misjudged that one too oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> over the course of the years. Good. So you given us some good ideas. Um, I think are some examples we talked about. I think we listed three or four of them for the high irritability exercises. You did touch a little bit on dosage, but could you just kind of hammer in what type of dosage you're looking to prescribe in the high irritability, whether it's reps, percentage, and, and any of that stuff, what, what we're looking for there? So again, with the, the high irritability patient, my number one goal is can I calm this thing yep. down as much as possible? And typically when I'm doing resistance exercise or loaded exercise for these individuals, we think of this, we call it the rehab dosage when we're going after local tissue problems. And that rehab dosage is going to have a spectrum. So it's going to be eight to 20 repetitions between 30 and 80% of their one rep max. And the way we decide where we're going to throw that dart is again, their irritability. So if we have the high irritability patient, it's going to be on the higher end of the rep scheme. So they're getting a decent amount of volume again to create that pump to the system. And on the lower end of that intensity spectrum, so 30% of their one rep max are in that area so that they don't have to handle all that tensile load. And then hopefully as the irritability starts to creep down, we're lowering our rep scheme and upping our intensity. So if it's a tendinopathy, if I'm understanding you correctly, let's say it was a tennis elbow issue, true ladder to tennis elbow, and you did your, your testing, your palpating, you found that ECRB was the aggravating culprit, maybe you would want to eventually test a one rep max of that ECRB, eventually our wrist curl, right, extensor, and then go after it that way, right? Am I following you? Correct. And, okay. and when I'm testing my one rep max in that situation for the high irritability patient, I'm not only looking at pure tensile load, I'm looking at symptoms as well. Yep. Because I don't want to send that person home significantly worse for the wear. So I have to, I have to include that in my, how I'm judging things. No, love that eight to 20 reps, three to four sets around 30%. Love that. Um, let's move into now let's cat. We kind of categorize right. We're going down, let's say medium that we get them down to a medium level irritability. Let's stick with that, that shoulder patient. 
what, how do we progress the patient with the exercises now? What type of exercises are we given when they're at the medium irritability? Yeah. So if we're sticking with a, a tendinopathy theme, what I'm always looking for is, can I go from a, a more static isometric type exercise to a concentric? And then can I get a more full range of motion where they're getting a concentric eccentric? And then at some point, can I get speed into the equation? Because most people are having to move their limb with some level of speed, whether it's, you know, Bill who's working at the factory or Ashley who's playing a bunch of tennis and, and everything in between. So I'm trying to as quickly as I can, as the irritability goes down, incorporate all three of those types of stimuli. And so again, it's, it's all going to be based on how they react to the stimulus, but I may do similar exercises where it may be sideline rotation. As the irritability goes down, I might get them into a more challenging position into that 90, 90 position, things like bottoms up kettlebell presses or carries that are going to challenge the cuff in a more functional way, lowering the rep scheme a little bit, upping the intensity of the weight. And then the third component with that speed, I'm going to start getting them on a metronome. Okay. Can we do the, some of these exercises with a little more speed to them to see how the, the tissues react to that? Dang. Yeah. Good. Good. Um, I think I want to go into dosage. Do you have any questions for me going into dosage at all? Or um, I, get something? I, I guess we could pepper it in here. So we kind of, we, we talked about high and then now we're into to mm -hmm. the medium. Does the amount of exercises, like different exercises, is that changing with the level of irritability? Or are you always trying to keep it at a pretty constant two or three different interventions? Or, you know, is it something that builds or becomes, becomes less? Yeah, it, it's going to depend on what that person is, tr is trying to get back to. So the more volume that they can tolerate and the more they're willing to commit to time, if their activity requires that, like, so let's say, let's say they are a high school basketball player or tennis player where we know they've got to handle a, a fairly extreme amount of vigor during their, their day-to-day tennis activity. Well, I want to start matching that amount of volume and intensity with my rehab to get as close as I can. And I'm basing that all on irritability and the amount of time that person has to, to commit to me. So if they're willing to do four or five things and they can handle that challenge, we're going to go there. If, if they say, you know what, I've got three kids, I work two jobs, I got six minutes, then we're going to match the, as much intensity that they can handle into that six minutes. Love that. That's great. Yeah. Um, in the medium irritability, are, are we still following in that rehab dosage you gave us of the eight to 20 reps, 30%? Or are we tweaking that here in this stage of level of irritability? Level of irritability? Yeah, it's, it's literally just a sliding scale for me. So the medium irritability is kind of that, that no man's land where I'm just... Trial and error, right? Exactly. Yep. How, how well did you handle the last stimulus we gave you last week? Okay, let's try to bump it a little forward and see how the symptoms react next week. Love that. Yeah, you gave a good progression of maybe they're sideline, maybe they're 90-90. You're probably playing with speed, load. I love that. Um, okay, well then I think we got one more category of level of irritability. It would be the low level irritability. So what types of um, exercises are, are we given there then? How are we progressing? Yeah, 
so one thing that we haven't talked about is in the rehab world, there's really two types of people that were there's or two types of dosages. There's strength dosage and then there's that rehab dosage. And, and strength in the research is a little cleaner where really we know five sets, five repetitions above 80% of their one rep max is, is what gets most people stronger pretty consistently. And the two types of people that we're going to see in, in that type of area are your high-level athlete or high-level individual who's looking for an, a performance gain where they just want to interact with their sport, their environment better. The other type of person is the person that doesn't necessarily have a, a really irritated or specific local tissue problem, but they're having they're having trouble interacting with their environment. So in the extremity course, I always give the example of Al. You know, Al's 65 years old. He comes into your clinic and he's going to tell you how he scored four touchdowns in a high school football game, how he deadlifts. He used to deadlift 500 pounds in his 20s and he had the big – he's going to give you all the stats. And you look at Al and you say, man, that none of that has happened for a really long time. But Al doesn't have a – when you test his shoulder out, it doesn't seem like pinpointed to any region or problem. He's just having problems getting, getting things over his head. We need to get Al stronger. So – getting him into some pressing five repetitions, five sets at 80% of his one rep max. So that was a really long winded way of saying when we get to that lower irritability of the rehab dosage, my goal is always to start shifting that person to a more strength and functional piece as, as soon as I possibly can. So if we're sticking with that, that rotator cuff related shoulder pain, can I get them doing a landmine press? for five sets of five as heavy as possible. Are they now able to tolerate that overhead press? Are they able to to tolerate push-ups or horizontal press? Always moving that lower irritability person to highly functional, high strength promoting movements. Wow. Yeah, it's a great example. Yeah, it's an excellent example. And you gave the, um, and I think you gave the dosage, the five sets of five. You know, do you, do you come across, you know, when you teach or the students or even maybe some patients, is it hard to get the buy-in sometimes from like someone like an owl or do you ever get any blowback from somebody saying, Hey, you know, I treat, you know, all these elderly people and I would never have them do that. You ever get any blowback? Certainly in, in, in the physical therapy space, it has become much easier because I would just point them to Christina Previtt and Dustin Jones, who do our modern management of the older adult. And the two of them, um, they have basically made a living proving that older adults not only should be getting strength promoting exercise, but they need it more than anybody else. So in, in the physical therapy space, I can pretty much pass the buck and just say, go, go check out Christina and Dustin's Instagram pages of their course and, and then come back and and see if we want to challenge that idea with the patient, you've got to be a little more sensitive because we're, you know, we're again, dealing with complex humans. You never know if, if their high school gym teacher, their middle school gym teacher shamed them about exercise because they weren't the fittest kid. And they've had a 50 years of, of feeling bad about their physical prowess. We're, we're going to temper for those type of patients, how hard we're going to be working towards those things, but I may not be as, aggressive day one. I want to meet that person where they're at. So giving them exercises they're comfortable with and always pushing to that, that direction. 
the, the easiest one to, I hate to use the word trick people is, is deadlifts because you, the kettlebells all kind of look the same. So you can progress people along without them, with them not realizing that you've bumped the weight up significantly over time. And then when you want to shift them to a barbell, you just say, well, you, you know, Doris, you've actually been lifting three times heavier than this for the last month. We're actually taking your weight down. We're just switching the implement. So things like that, uh, if someone seems to have a little bit more concern of just meeting them where they're at and then changing the implements so that they, they get more confidence. I think we forget sometimes that these patients come in and their day-to-day things, they come across 15 to 20 pounds all the time. I mean, what if Doris is living alone? You know, she's widowed. Who's cleaning out the garage? Doris is probably doing that. She's probably pushing the lawnmower, right? She's, I think we forget sometimes about the day-to-day things and how heavy those things we come across. I feel like people come across things that are 15 to 20 pounds all the time. Absolutely. And I, I, at this point, so much time has gone by. I don't, I can't remember off the top of my head, which one of the two created this term, whether it was Christina Previtt or Dustin Jones, but they always talk about one rep max living with our older adults where, you know, if, if Al or Doris or whoever, whatever human we're looking at, if they have to carry their laundry and deadlift their laundry off the ground and that laundry basket weighs 20 pounds, I want them to deadlift and carry at least a hundred pounds because I want them to have that much reserve between that and their one rep max. And for, for anyone who's listening out there, either of you two or myself, like knowing what it feels like to hit a true one rep on anything. I mean, your nervous system is just wrecked for the next 24 to 36 hours. And a lot of these folks are, are living their lives. Like you said, hovering right around that one rep max. And I can only imagine what that feels like to every day be, be buzzing that tower of your maximum threshold. Yeah. And you know, for those of us in insurance uh, based models, we just have to really do a good job of documenting why, right? Cause typically yeah. in an insurance based model, they see, they see X amount of range of motion. They probably want you out of the clinic. And I think sometimes people forget, maybe our goals have to write specific things, right. To pull this out of the cupboard, to lift this box out of the shelf. I think, we just have to get a little bit more, um, you know, a, a little bit better in our documentation of why we're doing such interventions to justify our services. I think if you're in a, in a insurance based model. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, that's the, the biggest challenge because he said, if, if you've got Alan, he can only overhead press five pounds and he's buzzing that tower. He's, he's living life on the edge. There's, he's only one reach overhead away from being right back in your clinic and having to use 10 more insurance visits where if, if we got Al where he could overhead press 35 pounds, there's a good chance there that he's not going to wind back up in your clinic three weeks later. That's awesome. Uh, you know, we, we stuck with kind of a soft tissue more approach. Does it change for you if it's more of a joint issue, the exercises you're giving, or do you still kind of base it off that level of the irritability and your dosage? Does that stuff change at all? Sir, so, if, if we're seeing a more stiffness dominant presentation compared to like that rotator cuff related, I'm going to do more of your traditional joint mobilizations, give that person some more mobility drills at home, things like that. But I'm at some point always circling back around to the resistance exercise. So I may give them a, a self joint mob. I may do some joint mobilizations, follow that up, but eventually 
we're trying to get functional with it. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's great. Um, what if we just, not to put you on the spot, but let's just, could I give you an example uh, of a patient and could you just give us like a synopsis of walking through someone, let's just say Ryan comes into your clinic with tennis elbow. Yeah. So with, if, if he was coming in fairly irritated, I may, I may do some manual therapy, whether, whether that's dropping some needles into that, that those lateral elbow structures, having him ride the lightning for, for 10, 15 minutes, doing some potentially some elbow manipulation. Certainly we've got to take a look at the cervical spine, potentially if it's that lateral elbow. And then from a, a exercise standpoint, probably going to start Ryan out with some isometric pronation, trying to see if he can tolerate five sets of 45 seconds in the lower extremity, really willing to push into a, a mild to moderate amount of pain with those isometrics in the upper extremity, people tend to be a little bit more irritable. So I want that closer to the, the pain-free or very low level of pain on those isometrics. Once his asterisk signs are starting to improve, he's tolerating those isometrics. Well, I'm going to move into some more concentric eccentric exercise. What that's going to typically look like is pronation, supination with actually, I've got this right by, I can show you got these old school dumbbells where I can top load one side and then I'm going to yeah. pronate and supinate here. And then oftentimes when we're using our elbows, we're maintaining some level of wrist extension or pronation and supination and going into elbow flexion extension. So isometrics, then I'm going to progress into concentric, eccentric, pronation, supination, and then I'm also going to do some holding that pronation and straightening the arm out. And then can I get to where they can pronate and supinate with a straight elbow, which is going to challenge all those structures a little bit more. As they can tolerate that, I want to move into some, some bigger exercises, some more compound movement. So our bent over row is always going to be a go-to where we're probably going to hit that strength dosage for the bent over row five sets of five as heavy as he can tolerate. And if Ryan's a real savage, we're going to get him on that pull-up bar. Well, he is really challenging the system with those pull-ups. It's a weighted pull-up for him. There weighted, you go. Up, weighted strict muscle up for Ryan. Yeah. And then at some point we've, we've got to start getting that speed back in. So whether we're using like a, a screwdriver and just have that metronome going and how many twists in the supination can he go, or whether that's a, a light band where, we're flicking that into supination or tossing a, a ball against the wall at a tempo, something to start training that, that speed component and getting him used to his more dynamic activities. And, and the thing I just laid out, that may be a three to five month progression. So he may be on those isometrics for, for two to three weeks to calm things down. Then another, you know, however long month to six weeks of those concentric eccentrics and then that speed being that final component. And then if, if Ryan plays sports or he's got a job that's dynamic, really getting specific to those job-related tasks as the final piece. That was beautiful. Dude, that was, that, was, that was money. That was awesome. Cool. So many post-surgical, and especially he and I, we see a lot of post-surgical shoulders. So typical progression you know, for us would be probably something supine, going into a kneeling, a tall kneeling, a standing, do you consider those positions when you're progressing somebody or 
Yeah, before I answer that, I should probably give some credit to Liam Bissett out of Australia. That that progression that I gave for the lateral elbow is very much based on her research, um, if anyone's trying to dig into that. And then to answer the question you just asked, I am always looking at those functional positions. I can't remember who said it first, but the concept of you, uh, you can't shoot a cannon off a canoe. So... If someone's really struggling in their in their midline in those positions, certainly bringing them into a, a tall kneeling or a half kneeling to really force them into a good position while they're doing some of their pressing or their functional activities. The way I really think about it is how much, if someone's struggling, I want to take as much complexity out of the system as I possibly can. So... I don't want them having to think about a lot of other joints and regions if they're, or their system to be trying to manage all those other spots if they're struggling with their shoulder specifically. So that may be, like you said, take them all the way down to supine or prone where, okay, now their trunk doesn't really have to be active. They're not managing their ankle mobility. They're not managing their hips. They're just focusing on that region. Then as they start to be able to handle that, then let's bring them into that half kneeling, tall kneeling where, Okay, they don't have to manage their foot and ankle, but they've got to manage their trunk and maybe their hip, and then finally bring them back okay, to their feet where it's going to be much more realistic where, okay, now we've got, you know, you've got to manage the surface you're standing on, your, your ankle and your hip mobility come into play, and getting your shoulder active at the same time. So similar to our irritability, as little complexity as we can put in into trying to get them back to the maximum amount of complexity that their environment will require of them. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, I guess the the one thing that I want to so we've we've done a lot of speaking on resistance training, um, and as Steve mentioned, we see a lot of uh, post-operative patients, and I mean we'll actually see a lot of low-level functioning people that are low irritability. Um, yeah, and so as a result, stretching is is something that we do pretty frequently here, right? From, you know, a lot of stretching early on in, in a rehab process after something such as a cuff repair. Can you speak on a little bit of, do you do much stretching, whether it be static or dynamic, and, and then how that kind of falls into the, the irritability model and the dosage dosaging? For sure. So the first nine years of my career, I, I was also in a setting where I saw a, a lot of post-op. The last year or two, not not as often that I'm seeing post-op, but with the post-op, which you, t- you two probably know better than anyone, a lot of that early phase is just respecting the the tissue and the healing of that that surgical site. And so certainly getting them moving better. In the setting that I'm in now for mobility and stretching, what I find myself leaning more and more on is eccentrics. So can we change that that tensile length relationship, that load length relationship where most people are a little bit weaker at those end ranges. And we find that the the nervous system tries to protect them at those end ranges. And that's what either creates the sensation of being tight or actual tightness. So instead of pure stretching, what I find myself relying on more often now is, is eccentric exercises to, to get that mobility and for them to start to feel a little bit load to, to have to really own those positions. Yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, that that's, that's a, that was an awesome question by Ryan, because I found that I would agree. I've kind of made that switch too. I certainly still use the distraction or the pull-up bands for a lot of stretching. Sometimes I make it dynamic, 
but there is a portion I'm probably starting out like that, but for like a, like a cross body stretch, sometimes a sleeper stretch to a degree. Well, more, they're, they're more in supine, um, maybe even sometimes a peck, but I've started to add in that load, right? Cause sometimes yeah. that's the missing component is just, is, is that input into the system, right? It, it used to be right. Like when we would stretch in gym class or growing up, whatever it is, it's, Hey, get the range of motion and go do activity and pray it sticks. Right. <laughs> everybody's, got a, everybody's got a different nervous system. So I think that's awesome. And also it, it uh, kind of falls into, you know, to me, I look at it like our last podcast guest, uh, Chad Burnham said, I look at stability as your ability to control that mobility. So specifically exactly. what you're talking about with those end ranges, that eccentric control can do that for sure. Right. Cool. Yeah, it's, that's all I've got. It's, Dude, that was, that was a great question. Um, well, what would your, you know, let's just say someone was fast forwarding through this episode. Mark, what would your takeaways for our listeners be today? Irritability is always going to be the most important thing when we're rehabbing patients. And that's both from a, a, a tissue irritability standpoint and a psychological irritability standpoint. How much is the person able to tolerate right now from an actual load standpoint? How much mentally are they, are they willing to push or can push at this time? And then your dosage needs to be matched to that context. So if it's, if it's someone who just needs general strength where they don't really need that much local tissue attention, we're going to hit five sets, five repetitions, 80% of their one rep max. If they need more local tissue exercise, like we've been talking a lot about the, the rotator cuff related shoulder pain, we're going to go 80 to 20 repetitions, 30 to 80% of their one rep max. And we're going to throw that dart based on the irritability, high irritability is going to be on the higher volume side, getting a lot of blood flow and, and tissue perfusion with much less tensile load. If they're on the low irritability side, we want to really bump that tensile load going towards that 70, 80% with a, a lower rep scheme, three to four sets of eight repetitions. Dude, that was money. <laughs> That's yeah. not your first rodeo doing that, is it? No, <laughs> I've done that spiel a few times. All right. Well, we've asked you all the the questions we want to ask you, but are you ready now to have some fun and sit on the hot seat with Ryan and I? I'm ready. All right. I think Ryan's got the first question for you. All right. So since uh, today's the, the first day of the U.S. Open, figured we got to have a golf-related question. All right. Uh, you and your – well, you're, you're perfect foursome. And let's go golfers. I don't know if you know uh, follow PGA golf or anything like that, but if it was you and, and three of your favorite golfers, what's, what makes your favorite foursome? So, so we'll go, I'll go two professional golfers and I'll go one non-professional who thinks he's a professional and myself. So we'd start out with Tiger just cause yeah. you know, I'm 37 years old, born in 1984, Tiger coming out in 1997 made, made golf very relevant for, a for an 11 or 12 year old at that time. So I, I just, he would have to be there for me just to, to watch him play. Number two, I, I would go John Daly because I just want to see what the party's like uh, <laughs> to, to hang with John Daly for, for three. I may, I may be dead by the end of it. But, <laughs> you might be. Um, you might be. But I just like to see and, – and kind of the combination of Tiger and John Daly. Yeah, I feel like they love each other out. Me, uh, like the most stoic golfer in the history right. of the sport and then, you know, a guy that's going to 
drink 36 beers and smoke five packs of cigarettes <laughs> all in the same same round. And then I would put uh, ISIS CEO Jeff Moore there. So uh, just a quick backstory. Jeff and I were at a Top Golf. This is this is the weekend before COVID. We're at a Top Golf and you know, hit hitting balls. And at some point I, I start noticing something strange. I'm like, Jeff hasn't missed a target in like 29 shots in a row. I'm like, dude, what, what's going on here? Like you're, what are you doing? So he was second in the state of Michigan in 1998. So he's a pretty, huh. a, a pretty decent golfer. But if you talk to him, he might as well be Tiger Woods. So I just love to see him in the situation of having to actually play with the real Tiger Woods and, and yeah. watch him crumble a bit. This question is for those of us, since I, I know um, I took your the course with you, you're a big fan of music. Oh, yeah. So I want to know what is the best concert you've been to in person? <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm going to out myself a, a bit here. So d- without a doubt – November 22nd, 1997, Fish at the Hampton Coliseum will, if anything ever tops that, I would be very shocked. Okay. Well, we got a lot of time. So we'll see. see. Ask you a little bit of a two-parter here. So I want to know your favorite CrossFit benchmark workout and your least favorite. Favorite CrossFit benchmark workout. I think I'm going to have to go with with none. (laughs) of the benchmark workouts I'm, I'm a very mediocre crossfitter so uh the uh th- there are none of those benchmark workouts that i am i'm just absolutely thrilled to uh to be participating in and then the feeling the rest of the day after fran is just something that when you see that written on the board even though it's the most classic crossfit workout um the, the anxiety is going through the roof for me for for about 48 hours just because I know it's going to wreck the, the next two days of my life. <laughs> yeah. For those of you that don't know, look up uh, Fran, the workout. It's 21, 15, nine of thrusters where you have the bar on your shoulders, like you're doing a front squat into a press and then you do pull-ups. And I've done that workout. And I think my best time on that is like two thirty-two, and I've just been wrecked like for the rest of the day, just messed up. It's yeah. moving. It was moving. It's it's good. I don't know if I could do that now. I, I got two kids, so now I'm in the dad bod stage. But you yeah. know, we're, we're we're trying trying to stay fit. So <laughs> awesome. Well, Mark, thanks so much uh, for being on the podcast, man. It was great having you on, and hopefully the listeners are able to take some things away with dosage, and maybe we'll see what more one rep max is being tested in clinics of our listeners. Yes, thank you, Mark, for your well, time. Thank you both very much for having me. Pre- appreciate the invite. All right. Thank you so much for listening to that episode of the Hand to Shoulder podcast. On the next episode, Cassie and Shelly are back and they are interviewing one of our doctors here at the Hand to Shoulder Center, Dr. Lumsden. Uh, They're going to be talking about some elbow things. I'm not quite sure, but it's going to be exciting as always and very, very educational. As always, if there's anything you guys would like us to cover, um, any topics, episode ideas, people you think we should interview, please feel free to reach out to us. Uh, The best way to get a hold of us is through our email. That is h2stherapist at newhands.net. That's the letter H, the number two, the letter S, therapist, all together at newhands.net. And we'll catch you on the next episode.